This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this U.S. politics edition of the program, the United States reaches an agreement for a stopgap measure to avert a first-ever default on its debts. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. The United States is virtually alone among world governments in imposing a government borrowing limit, which it has increased numerous times on a bipartisan basis over recent decades, either to a specific amount or suspended it for a year or two. According to the New Republic magazine, the debt racked up in recent years is due to the actions of both political parties, but the majority of it was accumulated under a Republican president, Donald Trump. Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York said that Republicans manufactured the crisis this year by conflating the routine measure of raising the debt ceiling with their opposition to President Joe Biden's call for more than $2 trillion in new spending. The proposed human infrastructure bill would expand several government social safety net programs related to health, education, child care, and combating climate change. However, the debt limit is the amount that the U.S. Treasury can borrow to pay prior debts and is not linked to future spending proposals. In any case, the Democrats say that new spending would be fully paid for with higher taxes on corporations and wealthy individuals, which Republicans also oppose. Well, on this edition of the program, we'll talk about the politics of raising the debt ceiling, wrangling between the progressive and centrist wings of the Democratic Party over the scope and cost of the so-called human infrastructure bill, controversy over abortion rights, and a sweeping interim Senate report about how former President Donald Trump attempted to install a loyalist in the Justice Department in his pursuit to overturn the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. And joining me, as always, to discuss these and related issues are our veteran political analysts. John Fortier is resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank here in Washington, and Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. That's a center-left policy group also based here in Washington. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Carol. Great to be here. Gentlemen, let me begin with Jim Kessler. Jim, about the debt ceiling, what's behind, in your view, this controversy over raising the debt ceiling? As stated, the United States is rather unique in imposing this, but what do you think was behind Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and his Republican colleagues' insistence that they would refuse to raise the ceiling unless Democrats repudiated their proposals for future spending? Okay, I'm going to try and explain the political implications of this, but it's going to sound crazy to most people. So there is always political wrangling between the two parties on raising the debt ceiling. Usually they come together in the end. This time something new has happened, and that is the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, has insisted that to raise the debt ceiling, it must go on a bill known as reconciliation, which is, in this case, would be a Democrats-only bill. And it's a bill that can pass with 50 votes in the Senate, not 60 votes. Why does that matter? Because if you put the debt ceiling on reconciliation as compared to any other piece of legislation, in the other pieces of legislation, you can simply put in a date. We're going to raise the debt ceiling till December 9th, 2023. But in reconciliation, you have to put in a dollar number. And Democrats fear, and rightly so, that that dollar number, let's say the number would be $30 trillion, 
will be used in ads against them for raising the debt ceiling. And it is because of that particular instrument of using reconciliation and having to put a dollar number in rather than a date that we are having a possible debt ceiling crisis that could sink the world economy. Well, thank you for that great explanation. Now, of course, we did avert it temporarily until early December. One could say that Mitch McConnell blinked in a sense. But let me get back to you, John Fortier, for your interpretation of what was going on. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it in other parts of the show. But just to put this in context, I think we're involved in a big dispute, mostly a dispute within the Democratic caucus in Congress about Joe Biden's plans, which include big infrastructure and a big set of spending and tax priorities that Democrats want to push through. There's a big debate about how big that second package would be, and progressives are pushing for a bigger deal. That's sort of the background of really what's going on in American politics. At the same time, we have this debt ceiling. And you're right to describe it in a way as something of a formality in that not just the spending that's happened in the past, but all the laws that we passed that cause spending to happen even going forward eventually are going to push us above a certain limit that we have to And it's true, if we didn't raise it at some point later in the month, we hadn't raised it, we would have faced some pretty cataclysmic problems. I don't think it's so clear that we always come together on this debt ceiling. This has typically, in recent years, been a partisan thing. If we have divided government, it's very difficult for the party out of the White House. They have to have one chamber vote for this. It has to be passed. But really, when there's a united government, the Democratic Party has the power to actually pass this debt limit all by themselves. And for the most part, Republicans were saying, we're really against all of this new spending and taxing, and we think it's going in the wrong direction, and it's going to contribute to future debts. And we don't want to put our stamp on the idea that we're going to raise the debt ceiling even further to allow more of that spending to go forward. And so I think Republicans were holding to that position, but there was a bit of a crack in the armor in the Senate where the Senate Republican leader, was worried that perhaps they would be putting some Democratic moderates, especially Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, in a very difficult position if they didn't at least give a little more time for Democrats to pass this bill. So Jim's absolutely right. Democrats don't want to put their name on a number that says we're going to authorize essentially all of this debt. They're worried it's going to be used against them in campaign commercials. They're worried it might slow the momentum for their spending packages. But what I think we have is a bit of a temporary truce, and we're going to go back to the arguing of moderate and progressive Democrats about what the size of this package is and then face that deadline again in December. Ultimately, I think the Democratic Party is going to have to pass it by themselves through some sort of reconciliation. But we'll see when we come in December and we face that same sort of question on the debt ceiling. What do you think, Jim Kessler? Will the Democrats eventually in early December when this deadline approaches again have to pass it by themselves through reconciliation? What are the options? Well, I didn't think Mitch McConnell was going to blink this time. So, you know, what makes this different is in the past, I do think that there is a way to make Democrats be the ones that pass the debt ceiling increase on their own. But it doesn't have to be through reconciliation. You could allow Democrats to bring the bill to the floor and have Republicans simply not filibuster it. And that's been done in the past. So it is rarely, if ever, done on reconciliation. Reconciliation has its own series of rules that makes it a bit of an onerous process. So I don't know the prediction on this, because three days ago, I would not have predicted that we would have gotten to this situation where, as John Fortier mentioned, we have a temporary truce. I think this battle continues to go on. And one more question to you, John Fortier. Critics say that 
Mitch McConnell appears to be playing politics with the full faith and credit of the United States. And echoing what Jim Kessler said, this is something different. You know, it's one thing to get out of the way and not filibuster prevent the Democrats from passing it on their own, but making them, you know, use this parliamentary procedure reconciliation, which Jim said, you know, requires them to put a a dollar amount and, you know, really keep extravagant with public spending. I don't see it quite that way in the sense that, look, reconciliation, Jim's right, hasn't been used very often for raising the debt ceiling. It actually was envisioned that way back when we passed the Budget Act in the 70s, that this is a path for that. It's very common for the opposition party and senators to against that. Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and John Kerry, the last four nominees of the the Democratic Party, all voted against raising the debt ceiling in the Senate. And yes, it's a more onerous task for Democrats to raise it. They don't want to put their name on this number, but they have the votes to do it. And I guess I think the story for Mitch McConnell is like Jim, it was a little surprising that he did give this temporary truce. And he, in a sense, is paying for that from Donald Trump and some conservative Republicans who are arguing, well, why did you even cave this much? So I don't think it's realistic that we're going to let cataclysmic things happen. And I think the power of Democrats, it's all there. It's all in their hands at the majority party. They can do it. The difficulty for Republicans is, again, they worry that perhaps Democrats getting their moderates, Joe Manchin, will get rid of the filibuster in certain ways and maybe do some other things that are harder on them down the road. But in terms of the actual wanting to vote for this debt ceiling increase, they think, rightly, the Democrats have the power to do it and they probably should do it as the majority party. Let's see what happens and we will return to the topic in late November. But first, you are listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. Our guests are John Fortier, he's resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, Executive Vice President for Policy at Third Way. And they join me via Microsoft Teams. We are discussing the major issues dominating the U.S. political landscape. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol Castiel, VOA, or connect with us on Facebook. Well, here's a shout out to a Facebook fan, Abdullah Sharif Mohammed, a Somali who lives in Nairobi, Kenya. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So back to our program. Back to you, uh, Jim Kessler. Let's segue into the infrastructure bills. We're at a point where the majority Democrats are going to have to pass this so-called human infrastructure bill on their own in addition to passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Talk about where we are right now in terms of the wrangling between the factions over this larger bill. And do you think the two factions, the so-called progressive and the more conservative moderate factions, can finally come together and pass this package? And could they do it before this debt ceiling deadline comes again in December? I am an optimist that both packages will pass. The infrastructure bill, the traditional infrastructure bill, and what you call human infrastructure, commonly known as the reconciliation bill, or as Biden calls it, the Build Back Better bill. It is going to look like it's going to collapse and fail 50 more times before it passes. My guess is it'll pass at the end of November or early December. We had a very sloppy week last week where the House, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, said she was going to bring the infrastructure bill to to the floor for a vote. That was a concession to a small group of moderates who had demanded that. That vote did not happen because the progressives in the caucus revolted because their feeling is these two different bills 
need to be joined at the hip. And I think the reality is those two bills are joined at the hip. But the other thing that happened that I feel is positive is both sides, the centrists and the progressives, moved substantially in their top line number of what they think should be in that reconciliation bill. It now looks very likely that instead of $3.5 trillion, that number is going to be closer to two, maybe $2.2 trillion. And the last 10 days, as caustic as it has looked out there, has shown a lot of progress. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. Are you equally optimistic, John Fortier? What's your take on, as we said, what the so-called human infrastructure bill will likely amount to, originally $3.5 trillion covering social safety net programs, combating climate change? To what extent do you think that number can come down enough in order for conservative Democratic senators, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, who are critical to passing this bill through what we're calling reconciliation, to what extent you see uh, coming together? Well, first, I think Jim and I should pat ourselves on the back for our commentary last month when we were on the show, which was essentially that this is going to be an incredibly ugly slog for quite a long time. And all of these short, fake deadlines of a week or two <laughs> when things are passed are, are not going to happen. But that is that true. It is very is difficult very to do this. But I will say two things. Partly, again, we are doing at least the, the larger bill through, through reconciliation. We are doing bills that can be passed by a majority, and they are primarily the mechanism is more taxing and spending, and that does allow for splitting the difference. Trimming a bit of a tax credit here, adding a little bit of a tax, changing the rate, those sorts of things can come to a resolution. Now, when you get into the fight, it's uglier than you can imagine. We've had this little interlude of the debt ceiling, but I think the big picture has been we've had this really bitter fight between moderates and progressives. People feeling very bad that commitments were broken when the infrastructure bill was going to be voted on. That being said, I think Jim's right that things have moved. The only thing I will say is, yes, the progressives are going to have to come off their number, and we're sort of guessing uh, what a range is that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema can support, and maybe that's in the $2 trillion range. But I do think a lot of the specifics, while some of them you can easily change the rates and change the eligibility and do some little negotiation, there are some bigger, more fundamental issues. This is a big package in Build Back a Better America. And you're going to find that there's some issues like climate and immigration and other things which are very controversial aside from the splitting the difference. So I still think Democrats have that majority. They will get there. I don't think it's going to be quick. And I think we're going to have more of these fights, not only about the number, which is slightly easier to resolve, but about some of the specifics within it, which are, are still kind of hot button issues. So I expect more infighting the Democratic Party, but ultimately, and I don't know when ultimately is, but it's not very soon, but ultimately some resolution of these things and likely passage. Well, as we've discussed before, Jim Kessler, certainly passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which needs to clear the House of Representatives now, and of course, the infrastructure bill, the one that would pass via reconciliation, Democratic votes only. Those are key to bolstering Biden's poll numbers and, of course, any kind of momentum for the next year's 2022 midterm elections, correct? Absolutely. I mean, there is no success for Democrats if either of these bills don't succeed. And when I mean success, I mean success in the 2022 midterms that are about 13 months away. Right now, there is just a lot of distrust between the moderate wing of the Democratic Party and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And that distrust is earned. 
there are reasons that in the middle of these negotiations, they don't believe the other side right now. And that infrastructure bill was pulled last week because it was seen as a moderate ploy to get out of, at least for some, passing the reconciliation bill. I do believe that we are very close to an agreement on a top line number for the reconciliation bill and possibly some major parts of the climate provision. And that'll be enough to clear the distrust between the two wings of the party and then maybe move the infrastructure package on its own. But both of these have to pass for there to be something for Democrats to talk about and sell in the 2022 midterms. Failure is not an option. Back to you, John Fortier, quickly for a comment on the politics with respect to the Republicans. Would you agree that part of the reason why the Republicans are possibly making a bigger deal over the raising of the debt ceiling has to do with the fact that they too see that should the Democrats pass these two bills, both the bipartisan and the reconciliation bill, that this would buoy the Democratic base and it could perhaps hurt or if not hurt the Republicans, it doesn't really help them because they are supposedly rather popular bills with the public, both Democrats and Republicans. I guess I would say this. Democrats have majorities. They control all the levers of power, but they control them very narrowly. I expect a midterm election is almost certainly going to have the Democrats lose something there. So I think probably Democrats see that the need to do something before that next election, where they're probably not going to have the majorities to push a Biden agenda in the same way in, in a second Congress, but also that it is better to succeed. I do agree with that. I'm not sure that it really buoys Democratic chances and really makes them more likely to win that midterm election. I think it's still likely a loss. But everything falling apart, a big fight within the party would certainly be worse. So I think Republicans would love to see Democrats this fall on policy grounds, but also on political grounds. I think it's in Democrats' interest to pass it. But I don't think that puts them in great shape for the midterm elections. I think they're going to face some very tough times regardless. In the few minutes we have left, gentlemen, back to you, Jim Kessler, on abortion. It's going to be a big issue confronting the Supreme Court There's a major case. We've had settled law that is Roe v. Wade, which gives a woman the right to choose an abortion. It's legal up to a certain number of months. But of course, recently, Texas passed a law, a very restrictive abortion law, which banned most abortions in this second most populous state, banned most abortions after six weeks. Now, that was recently struck down by a U.S. district judge. But this is just temporary. Where do we stand Why does this resonate so much, both socially and policy-wise and politically, particularly for those pro-choice, both Democrats and Republicans, but particularly the Democrats? Carol, you used the right term, settled law. For most voters, this is settled law. This is a settled issue. And now suddenly it is unsettled. I have a theory about issues like abortion, which is the party that brings it up is the party that loses on the issue. And what happens is Texas means that the Republican Party has now put abortion as an election issue on the table front and center. And I think it's going to be damaging, and it's going to be damaging particularly in the parts of the country where Republicans have already started to lose a fair amount of support, and that is the suburbs and suburban women. So this was, in one sense, the Texas abortion law was a dream goal of the Republican Party, but it was a dream that they hoped that they never actually realized. They liked the issue out there, but they didn't really want the success. And I expect that if Democrats do survive the 2022 midterms, and I agree with John that history shows that they're going to be tough midterms for the Democrats, and history would show that they're going to lose one or both chambers. If they don't, the abortion issue will be the reason why. 
What do you say to that, John Fortier, regarding the abortion issue, the politics of it? Abortion has been a divisive issue for the parties for a while, but I would say that the parties have even sorted themselves to be more clearly pro-life and pro-choice over the years. There are very few pro-life Democrats in Congress and very few pro-choice Republicans. And so these are divisive issues. I would say in certain ways, the issue has been relatively close and divided, but the people who are most animated by the abortion issue, the ones who are say that they're likely to change their vote have been a little bit more Republican. It's a minority of both parties. What Jim is saying is perhaps by bringing up this issue in a way that the Democratic base will be more energized. I don't know if that's true. I think there's a lot of possibility that some of these cases get decided somewhat more on procedural grounds and they're not quite as dramatic as the people portray them to be. But we'll have to see. Both parties have a small group that is extremely motivated by this and Republicans group is slightly larger. Maybe that will help Democrats. And I think Jim is absolutely absolutely right that it plays it again into the growing education divide or class divide in Republican Democratic parties where Democrats in the suburbs, but Republicans in more rural and small town and working class areas have different views on these things. And if the suburbs get ginned up, that's a good thing for Democrats. But we'll see if that follows pattern or not. And as we close back to you, Jim Kessler, let's end with this Senate Judiciary Report, which details former President Donald Trump's efforts to undo the 2020 election results. The report offered insight into how he asked Justice Department leaders to declare the election corrupt and how he apparently disparaged its top official for not doing anything to overturn the results. His That is, Trump's actions led to a near revolt at the department that receded only after senior officials warned of a mass resignation. What's your take on this report, its significance and implications? I think there's two significant pieces about this report. One is it's a reminder that the United States democracy was saved by bureaucrats. It was by bureaucrats in the Justice Department, by bureaucrats in state election and county election offices out through the states that stood up for the truth and did not buckle to Donald Trump and his ridiculous and dangerous demands. And then number two, on the flip side, is the absolute silence you're hearing from Republican elected officials in Congress and across the nation. They basically should be saying about this latest details of Trump's abhorrent and undemocratic behavior that he has no basis in the Republican Party and he should never run for office again and they should all pledge to oppose him. But they won't. All right, John Fortier, you get the last word on the significance of this report, the broad outlines of which we know, but still the documents and interviews with former officials really lay bare the extent to which Trump tried to remain in the White House and how he benefited from the support of a little-known Justice Department lawyer who was willing to do his bidding in exchange for becoming uh, you know, attorney general. I think you're right that we did know the bigger picture before, but now you know, the details are still very ugly. And I think there's a lot to be critical of the president and what went on in the last days of his presidency. I also do think that we think politically, Jim puts it one way, but I guess I could put it another way, that we're not unified on how much we want to focus on this going forward and what the 
status of Donald Trump is. And I think you find here Republicans in Congress, most of them, with a small exception of a few who were voting against Donald Trump earlier, believe that the investigations are not being done in a bipartisan way. They didn't want to join the investigations because they didn't feel like they would be. And, you know, it's becoming politicized. You know, at the end of the day, Donald Trump is still a very popular figure in the Republican Party. And that may be a problem for Republicans going into the 2024 election. We can't see that far ahead at a crystal ball as to whether he runs or not. But certainly among Republicans, many of them would say that Donald Trump has flaws and acted poorly in this case, but they are not ready to throw him overboard. And I think the Republican voter base supporting him is obviously going to be reflected in the people in Congress. So it's a potential problem for Republicans down the road. But I think right now you do not have unanimity on how bad this was and how far we go forward or how fair Democrats are investigating this. I doubt we're going to change that dynamic in the next three years. That's all the time we have on this politics edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, John Fortier, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. Gentlemen, as always, thanks for a terrific conversation. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.